0: Lord, our Lord, and all the earth, how excellent is your name. You've set your splendor above the heavens. Amen, indeed. I hope you've had occasion even this day to take in some of the splendor of God's creation and ponder and contemplate his goodness, even on this beautiful Lord's Day that he's given us. Well, friends, now turn with me, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Ephesians 4, as we continue in our series through this letter from the apostle paul we're trying to do our part as we've said to combat the theological malaise that is rampant in the wider church and of course the fact is that so many american christians don't know as much doctrine as they should and that fact that's not just something that bothers really nerdy academic egghead presbyterians right we're not just bothered because people aren't as smart as they should be no It's concerning because it's ultimately detrimental to their soul. That's why we're concerned. It's concerning because it's detrimental to the soul of the Western church. As the late R.C. Sproul once quipped, you can't worship what you don't even know. You can't worship what you don't know. And so the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church are probably two of the areas where churches in our society are at their weakest. And the New Testament epistles combine and emphasize those two doctrines beautifully. Ephesians certainly does. And Ephesians, like all of Paul's epistles, it follows a basic twofold division. Doctrine, and then ethics. That's how the Puritans described it. First half, doctrine. Second half, ethics. Or, you might say, gospel, and then implications. How you should live in light of the gospel. First half, uh, in indicative. Second half, then imperatives. Whatever terminology you like. It's not always an even 50-50 split in terms of uh, the chapters of Paul's epistles, but that's how Paul likes to structure his writings among that along that basic twofold pattern. And so Ephesians 1: two and three, that was the doctrine section. Christ has come, Paul declares, and folding us into union with him. Christ saves sinners, glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul burst into doxology there at the end of chapter three. So doctrine of Christ, largely speaking, broadly speaking, chapters 1, 2, 3. Well, tonight, we turn the page to chapter 4, and we're in the second half, the ethics half, the imperatives, the therefore, right? Therefore, in light of what Christ has done, here's how you should then live as God's redeemed people. Here, and we've already done it, as I say, it's not necessarily a neat, tidy split of of black and white of... Paul only speaks about the doctrine of Christ in the first half, and he only speaks about the doctrine of the church in the second half. Now, Paul cheats a little bit, and he inserts both of those doctrines in either direction. But here, broadly speaking, we begin to consider something of the doctrine of the church life together as a community of God's people. We need to be thinking about that as we prepare as a congregation, as a nationwide church for challenging days ahead. We need Christ's grace, and we need each other, brothers and sisters. And as we'll see in a moment, the first section of chapter 4 is focused on unity. The first thing the Apostle Paul wants us to understand about how to walk in a worthy manner of our calling, in light of our redemption, we need to live consistently with the call of Christ upon our lives. And Paul's first order of business is to emphasize unity in the church and under his kingship, under his lordship. So, with that said, let's read God's word and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, we'll read verses 1 through 16. This is God's holy word. Hear it. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call: One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... In love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us, tonight. Would you pray with me again, friends? Our Father, as we have just read your Holy Word and as it is preached, would you work by your Spirit among us? We need you, Holy Spirit, to give us illumination, to give us seeing eyes and hearing ears, to give us understanding. And having done that, seal, we pray, your Word to our hearts and make it our delight. Make it our joy for our everlasting good and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Unity. Unity is one of those buzzwords that gets thrown around and bandied about a lot these days, which is unfortunate, because it's one of those words that's truly beautiful when we understand it, and it's one of those words that, like so many other buzzwords, it loses something of its potency to our hearing, to our ears, when it gets so cheapened and when it gets so frequently and flippantly employed. But the unity of the church is a beautiful thing. The unity of the church is a vital and basic thing. And not and the concept of Christian unity is not one which we should be so quick to kick to the curb simply because it has been cheapened by its flippant use in our day and age. The unity of the church is basic and vital. Our Savior, in his great high priestly prayer, he prayed for this very thing. We're going to study that in the Gospel of John when Dr. Wilborn gets there in a matter of weeks. We're in John 12, and so we should be in the high priestly prayer and A matter of time, we'll consider that at length, as we should. When we confess the Apostles' Creed, when we confess the Nicene Creed, when we rehearse these words together, these ancient summaries of the faith from the ancient church in our worship services, we confess that we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Of course, that word Catholic just comes from a Greek word that means whole or all, so don't let that word disturb you, it just means whole or all, one whole apostolic church. One church, holy, because Christ has purchased her, and Catholic, because this truth of Christ and his gospel is what all Christians in all ages and all parts of the world have always believed. That's what we mean when we employ that word Catholic. Catholic. And it's apostolic because these teachings have been handed down to us from the holy apostles themselves, from Christ's own band of brothers, and we've adhered to them ever since. There is a unity of the church down through the ages. And yet, and yet, the unity of Christians is one of those things that is so easily fractured. Yeah, you've, you've got the, if you're a church history buff, you know the, the great schisms between east and west schisms that occurred in the Protestant Reformation and new denominations forming and so forth, yes. But even more personally, we all have friends and folk that we know who once attended the church and have left. Maybe it was this congregation. Maybe it was a congregation you used to be a part of. You had friends and companions who left that church for one reason or another. Maybe it was for some legitimate reason, maybe they moved and in God's calling he brought them to a different part of the country, maybe it was for a legitimate reason such as a personal hurt or an unresolved conflict, but too often, too often I dare say, and I think we know this, it's for entirely illegitimate, selfish, and petty reasons, and we think, yeah, you're right pastor, what's wrong with those people? But the truth is, sometimes we hold grudges too, don't we, brothers and sisters? The truth is, sometimes we speak harshly. The truth is, we often fight, and too often, we illegitimately divide. Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, once wrote in one of his teaching series, How then shall we live? Or how shall we then live? Well, if I could take that phrase and embellish it by one little word, I want to suggest to you, how then shall we live together. How shall we then live together? That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to consider tonight in Ephesians 4. Three headings, three simple headings for us to look at as we consider Paul's instructions to us here in the first half of Ephesians 4, all around the theme of unity, the necessity of unity, the tools for unity, and then the shape of unity, or what unity looks like, if you want to phrase it like that. The necessity, the tools, and the shape of unity. So let's think along those lines together for a few moments, shall we? First, verses 1 through 6, the necessity of unity. Therefore I, Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Those of you who know Paul's mannerisms and his techniques and his writing, time you see the word therefore pop up, you want to ask yourself, what is the word therefore? Therefore. Therefore, in light of all that I've said about the grace and the glory and the power and the security of Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3, therefore, in light of all that doctrine that I, that's been coming at you like drinking from a fire hydrant, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling. Christ has called you. He's summoned you like Lazarus from the grave. He's summoned you from death to life. He's united you to himself. He's bought you with his own precious blood, believer. So live accordingly, Paul's pleading with you. you're, you're, if you're a Believer in Jesus, you're saved. You're pardoned, you're ransomed forever. You are Christ's. So live a life that is becoming and that is befitting of your new identity and that new reality that is true of you. He's, he's a bit metaphorical, making a play on words. He says there at the front end in verse 1 of chapter 4, I'm a prisoner for the Lord because at this point as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is under his two-year house arrest at this time in Rome. I'm a prisoner and I can't walk. I wish I could. I'm literally a prisoner. I'm literally in chains. I'm literally bound I'm and I cannot walk. So I'm telling you, This is how you should walk as a man who's pleading with you, a man who wishes he could walk. Oh, Ephesian saints whom I love, would you walk? Live like this. How are we going to do it? We've been redeemed. So live this life worthy of our Christian calling. That's a high high summons. How are we going to do it? Paul helps us. Look at verse 2. We are to do so with all humility and gentleness, With patience, bearing with one another, and love. Five Christian virtues that he cites here. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, I might call that forbearance, and then love. These are the ingredients necessary for Christian unity. That sounds absolutely lovely. Who wouldn't want a group of friends like that? Or who wouldn't want to belong to a church community like that? Full of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. Oh, how sweet the sounding, but oh, how hard the doing. How in the world are we going to begin to obey that exhortation? Praise the Lord, there is help. Look at verse 3. Be eager, Paul says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a lot like sanctification or holiness. We must pursue it. We absolutely have to pursue holiness. We absolutely have to pursue sanctification. Absolutely. But ultimately, our unity is enabled by, much like our sanctification is enabled by, the Holy Spirit, who is God the Lord. Right? There's real help here. Paul exhorts us to pursue these virtues. He says, have unity amongst yourselves, Christian Ephesian Christians, and all Christians. Humility and love and patience and gentleness and forbearance. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, slaying our sin and teaching us patience and and helping us to love. There's real help here. These are not just pie-in-the-sky ideals that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make happen. God the Holy Spirit is at work in us and among us to bring these about and bring this to fruition and manifestation. But actually, there's even more help than that. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. I love Paul for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is because he's so wonderfully Trinitarian. All over Ephesians, the doctrine of the Trinity shines forth from Paul's pen and, and these pages. And that's certainly the case in this passage. The doctrine of the Trinity, even as we're talking about the doctrine of the church, we got to have some other doctrine here as well. The doctrine of the Trinity is what encompasses and surrounds and empowers this pursuit of Christian unity. Look at verses 4 through 6. Notice the repetition of the word one. Uh, This word is repeated seven times. There's one body, verse 4, one body, namely the church, and that one body has been wrought by and is indwelt by one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's one hope of our calling, and he's likely hearkening back there to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 in one sense, Right, Jews and Gentiles, remember what he said there? Jews and Gentiles, you've been saved by the same Lord. You're drawn and you're sealed with that same Spirit. You've got the same hope, the same eternal destination held before you. One people of God with one destiny, not multiple. So we have, Paul says, one Lord, verse 5. One Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are told is the object of our one faith. Also there in verse 5. And the great sign of our union with him is our one baptism, also there in verse 5. So, one church, one people of God who have been sealed with one Spirit. There's Trinity. There's one member of the Trinity, one Spirit. Because we share faith in one Lord Jesus. There's the second member of the Trinity. And thus, verse 6, we have one God who is the Father. There's that third member of the Trinity. One God who is the father of all believers, therefore making us one family adopted into his household. Our unity, in other words, is founded upon unity that is in God himself and it reflects God's unity and triunity unity right? Three persons, one God. One God in whom we believe and trust and love and adore and yet there is more than one that is that one God. Ever three and ever one. We, the church, are ever many and yet ever one in him. Our doctrine of the church bears much reflection on the doctrine of the trinity. And Paul uses that plurality and yet singularity of the trinity to get at his doctrine of the church, of our plurality and our multiplicity and yet singularity and unity that we experience and enjoy one with another. Christian unity. Sounds great. Let's do life together, to invoke a popular verbiage in these days. Everyone can get on board with that. But then, we find that living together in close proximity, in close community, with frequent contact and interaction with one another, can actually be kind of hard. How are we going to do it? Christian unity, living life together, wonderful, until I spend more than 20 minutes with you and find out that you actually get on my nerves a lot, and I probably do to you too. How are we going to do it? Actually, Paul is summoning us in verses 4 to 6 to a God-centered life, to an understanding of the Christian life, of, of our life as disciples, as one which is surrounded by, enveloped by, affected by, inhabited by, whatever other verbs I can make up here, by the work of all three persons of the Godhead. Inasmuch as your salvation is a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... That's an idea you've heard before. It took the power and the triune working of every member of the Trinity to bring your dead heart to life, believer. Father, Son, and Spirit at work from eternity past, breaking into the present and carrying you through into, into eternity future. Father, Son, and Spirit it took to claim you, reclaim you from sin and sweetly draw you to life in himself. Inasmuch as your salvation dear friend, is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, so too is our life as the church, our life as a congregation, our discipleship is a work that is wrought by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a God-centered life. And a God-centered life, as one commentator put it, is a life that will find the glory of God more valuable than self, so that self-promotion begins to shrivel and we begin to learn humility. One of the virtues Paul talks about here. A life set free by grace, free from the need to assert its own power, and thus we learn gentleness, another virtue that Paul cited here. A life amazed by God's wise providence, therefore dying to the need to control, and thus learning patience, another one of Paul's virtues. A God centered life in learning to forgive as we've been forgiven. It dies to the need to be right all the time, and that Need to be right all the time crumbles, and thus we learn forbearance, another one of Paul's virtues. A God centered life is captured by the love of God demonstrated such that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, if I can put it this way to the degree, to the degree that we know Christ Jesus, and to the degree that we are captivated by the sheer wonder of his glory and his grace. It is to that degree that our life together will mirror and reflect the God whom we adore. If we want better body life, if we want more unity in the body of Christ, to the degree that we want that is the degree to which we must give ourselves over to adoration of the glory and grace of our triune God. Trinity in unity and unity in the church. So that's the first thing for us to see from this passage, the necessity of unity, the necessity of unity. Then, secondly, if you look with me at verses 7 through 12, there we have the tools, the tools for unity. As I said, Paul gives a lofty charge, a high summons to live the Christian life, very high, daunting even. But praise God that his grace supplies exactly in proportion with what his word demands. That which God demands of you, he himself provides the very resources you need in order to obey that which he commands. Notice verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul wants us to understand that the unity that he's thinking about, the unity that he's envisioning here, it's not a sort of flat, sterile sameness, a kind of cookie-cutter, drab uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Again, that's a phrase that's been sadly abused and distorted by some of our friends and neighbors as if to justify a kind of anarchy in the church or an anarchy in our denomination. But the abuse of a good thing does not nullify the good thing. It is a true phrase and it applies here. All parts of the body are needed to make the body function, yes? We need more than just an arm or a leg. We need kidneys and we need... Stomachs, and we need bladders and gallbladders and throats and lungs and blood vessels, and we need all of it to make our body function. How good would we be if we were just a couple of arms or elbows? It sounds silly when you put it that way. The metaphor works in the church as well. Each of us have been given distinct and different gifts of grace to use in the service of the church's unity. And to bolster this point in verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. He quotes from Psalm 68, Verse 18. If you look at verse 8, 4 by, excuse me, verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When he, when Christ, Paul's getting at, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68, in its context, is talking about the victory of Jehovah. Uh, the the, the, the Lord God Almighty in the Exodus event, right? He, he came down and he slayed his enemies and he rose triumphantly over them all as he led his people out of cruel Egypt and he led them through the Red Sea and on their way toward the Promised Land. Is Jesus really the same as God? Well, the Apostle Paul certainly seems to say so and says as much. He takes an Old Testament psalm speaking about the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and he applies it directly to Jesus of Nazareth here in Ephesians 4. Indeed, if you if you can imagine it, what Jesus did was even more glorious than what occurred at the Exodus. Right? God the Son, that second member of the holy and ever blessed Trinity, he descended from the heavens. He descended from heaven's splendid sapphire courts all the way down to the lower regions, the, the earth, Paul says, the lower regions, the earth. All the way down, taking on our flesh, obeying on behalf of us impotent, helpless sinners, dying in our place, and then rising victoriously, having accomplished our salvation. And after that, as if that wasn't glorious and victorious enough, he ascended back again and he's enthroned at the right hand of God. And as one man put it, like a mighty conquering king, he distributes the spoils of his victory To his liberated people. He gives gifts to his church. He is victorious, even as God led captive Israel victoriously out of slavery in Egypt, and he gave gifts in the spoil. So too, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, has led his captive people free out of the bondage of death and sin, and he has given gifts of the spoil to his people, the church. He gives gifts to his church, and he gives gifts to particular individual Christians. And Paul, the apostle, is saying that many and various gifts that the conquering, victorious Christ has distributed to us in his, in his spoilage, those gifts serve to build that unity to which God is calling us and to which Paul is exhorting us. I'm calling you to unity. Get about the business of unity. Good news, you've got the gifts to make them happen, and they come from the hand of the risen Lord The risen and ascended Lord has given you the very gifts to help bring that about, Ephesian Christians and all Christians. What are those gifts? Well, verse 11 tells us some of them. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. The apostles and prophets, of course, are foundational to the church. Paul said that back in Ephesians 2, if you remember it. The former outsiders, the Gentiles, They are one with the Jews, we are fellow saints, and we have a faith that is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That's one of Paul's conventional shorthand ways of saying those who gave us the word of God. The prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, all the word of God from both testaments. Words given by Christ to the apostles, and it was written down so the canon of scripture is complete. The apostles served their purpose, and now they are no more. There are no modern-day apostles. And we can talk about what constitutes an apostle another time. Uh, I have a story for you. I won't tell it right now, but come and ask me about it sometime when I was age 16 and I was anointed an apostle. That was my pre-PCA days. Ask me about that sometime. The apostles handed down the word of God. We need that word to build our faith and build Christ's church. It's utterly foundational, the word is, that's handed down from the apostles and prophets. Utterly foundational. But just like when you're building a house, you don't lay a foundation over again. Prophets and apostles, you can't improve upon that foundation. Keep it and build upon it. But he also mentions evangelists. Another gift. The apostles, the prophets, but then the evangelists. Now, the office of evangelist is not mentioned a whole lot in the New Testament. Four times, I believe, by my counting. So we don't know a whole lot about them. But according to one commentator it seems that an evangelist in the New Testament was someone sent into a particular church with authority delegated to them to bring stability and good order in needy situations. So for example, Timothy was called to do the work of an evangelist, and he was sent to Ephesus to help get that church settled. We still have this office of evangelist today, even in the PCA. Uh, my good friends, well, you know one, you know Matt Lamus. He's a, he's a missionary supported by this very congregation, Matt Lamus. another friend of mine, Nick Bullock, both of these men serving in Europe, they were ordained and they were given the powers of an evangelist by the presbytery, invested with that power, which means they have certain temporary powers, certain temporary powers to employ until the church is better established and other fellow elders and ideally deacons are raised up because they're going into a gospel barren land. They're going into a place where there is virtually no reformed presence and they're planting a church from scratch. An evangelist. Something about our modern understanding there informs understanding of evangelist as a gift to the church in Paul's day. But then after that then there's shepherd and teacher which is most likely two titles for one office. Now. You grammar nerds and grammarians out there, this is where the Oxford comma comes in very handy. And if you're not an Oxford comma user, there is still time for you to repent of your ways. If you don't know what I mean, I'd be happy to enlighten you after the service. Truly, if you're using an Oxford comma style, you would say, I'm eating eggs, comma, bacon, comma, and toast, right? Three distinct things. Here in this verse, Christ gave some to be apostles, comma, prophets, comma, evangelists, comma, shepherds, no comma, and teachers. They should be hyphenated, really. Right. Pastor, hyphen, teacher, shepherd, hyphen, teacher. This is consistent across the major English translations. I, I compared them. ESV, uh, New American Standard Bible, King James Version, New King James Version. Now, John Calvin put a comma there, so to speak, and he understood teacher to be a distinct office from shepherd, pastor. So that's interesting I think mistaken, but that's a conversation for another day. You may have noticed that on Pastor Wilborn's sign outside of his study or on, on his email signature. It says, C.N. Wilborn, pastor-teacher. Hyphen Alright? Paul is talking about a minister in a local congregation in our parlance. It's talking about an elder whose work is to labor in word and in doctrine, preaching scripture and teaching truth. But the key thing to notice about all four of these offices, all four gifts, prophets, apostles, evangelists, shepherd teachers, is that the risen and ascended Christ pours out on his church in order to build our unity is that they are all word ministries. Did you see that? They are all offices who function in scripture proclamation, scripture sowing, scripture disseminating, scripture teaching at the center of Christ Jesus, King Jesus' project in building and fortifying our unity is raising up and giving men of God equipped to preach the word of God to the people of God. It is central to his project. Then do note verse 12 because it helps us understand how that works in a congregation's life. These men, these offices, these gifts who minister the word... Christ gave them to the church. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, there's all kinds of analogies out there for how to express the dynamic between the minister and the congregation. Some analogies are more helpful than others, but I rather like the one that was suggested to me by another pastor friend of mine. He said the church should be like an orchestra. Neither the conductor nor the instrumentalist is dispensable. The orchestra needs a conductor to lead, to help them understand the musical score rightly, to interpret it rightly. Yes, but the conductor cannot do the work of the trumpeter or the oboist or the cellist for them. He can't hop out of his director's stand and go play the oboe at a moment's notice, or at least he ought not to. The instrumentalist must play and join in the task in order to make the music that is set before them. Who does ministry in the local church? Well, according to Paul... The minister is to equip the saints, and it is the saints together who do the work of Christian ministry. Ministry comes to us from the Latin word, simply means service. How is Christ building unity in us? He's pouring out gifts, which teach us from Holy Scripture. And as we are taught from Holy Scripture, as we are under the benefit of those gifts which Christ Jesus pours out in his church. As we are taught from Holy Scripture, we are equipped for service. To put it a bit punchy, as one commentator did, service is how we are to respond to the Word of God, not to be mere consumers of it. Service is how we respond to the Word of God, not to be merely consumers of the Word of God. Right? Oh, You like like John MacArthur's preaching, do you? Well, I'm I'm a little more partial to Al Martin or Sinclair Ferguson. To be a mere consumer with rarefied, elevated, elite, Reformed tastes is not a godly response. We see this in the Reformed world. Frankly, I'm going after myself now because I know my own heart. We see people passive-aggressively showing off their reformed bona fides by noting how our preferred preaching is not your preferred preaching. Be careful. No, as one man said, the response to the word of God to which Paul is calling us is a response of service. Who are you serving? Whom are you serving? You don't need a title, and you don't need an official recognized ministry. Let the PCA understand But the response of the word of God to which Paul is calling us is a response of service. Brothers and sisters at Covenant PCA, I see it here. Those of you who step up to make sure the bulletin gets printed every week, or if our printer blows a gasket as it's prone to doing, you're here to meet with a repairman or run to Staples in a last-ditch effort if need be. I see you volunteering in our children's Sunday school classes and on Wednesday nights. I hear you visiting the shut-ins, bringing piles of food and sundries to us, to the Morrises when we finally arrived so that we didn't have to make a 9 o'clock grocery run and we were exhausted from that trip and that trial. There are so many of you here who as soon as you see a visitor with us, you make a beeline to them to make sure that they feel welcome. So many of you coordinating the summer picnics with all the food and the activities and the fellowship, the calls and the texts to people who've been missing or those who've been out sick and away from our number for some time. Those of you who volunteer in the nursery. The men, the men volunteering in the nursery. Rare is the church where the men step up to volunteer in the nursery. Now maybe to the world all this stuff that I'm just rehearsing sounds petty and inconsequential. It's not. It takes a thousand little things and more to make the life of the body, to make the life of the congregation function. And in the things you're doing, you're serving each other. Well done, Covenant PCA. Well done, brothers and sisters. Keep up the good work. And that's just a smidgen of the things that you're about. We'd be here all night if I cataloged them all. But the response to the word of God is that the saints do ministry. The saints do service to one another. And as we do that, unity is the fruit that we begin to bear. Unity is the fruit that we begin to bear. So, the necessity of unity, the tools for unity. Then thirdly and finally, the shape of unity. Verses 13 to 16, the shape of unity. Notice that unity and maturity go together, right? We will attain, verse 13, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But there's a warning for all of us. However deep our scriptural knowledge may be, however great our theological profundity. If you look back at verse two, verse four, or excuse me, chapter four, verse two, if we haven't grown in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. And love, we're not mature. There's a Scottish expression that I love. It says, let us not look as though we were baptized in vinegar. Right? You know Christians like this, right? Being sour, distant, severe, hypercritical. Those are not fruits of the Spirit. But at the same time, as we seek to grow in gentleness and patience and love and humility, this doesn't get us off the hook from being careful. Look at verse 14. We are to grow, we are to grow up, no longer children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We need to know the truth. We need to stand firm, we need to be established in sound teaching so that we're not led astray by craftiness. That's a deliberate word that Paul invokes there harkens all the way back to Genesis 3. Who was crafty? Satan. So that we're not led astray by craftiness, deceitful teaching, or faddish, shallow false teaching. One of the things that you're probably going to get tired of hearing me say as we live the Christian life together for many, many years to come, one of my go-to phrases is, it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And you see that here in Paul. For Paul, we absolutely must get our doctrine right. We must be sound in our doctrine. We must be accurate in our teaching. We must be sound and firm in our theology. And that virtue is to be wedded in love. Well, Should we be a people who have good theology or should we be a people who are gentle? The answer is yes. Let's not be children. Let's not be tossed about. Let's grow up. Let's get our theology straight. Why? That we may be speaking the truth in love so that in love we may grow up into all things into him who is the head. We get our doctrine right. We love each other by speaking truth to each other, and that's how we get unity. And that's how we grow. The the church, the body grows into maturity, which means we grow in Christ and in likeness to him who is the head of the body. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, all of us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part does its work. Each Christian gets equipped with that word ministry and is serving and is plugged in. And the body works properly, it's functioning well, it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to. And that's why Christ has given us the ministry of the word. You remember what Jesus said back In John's gospel, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May God be pleased to make it true among us. There is a necessity, and he's given us the tools. So may God grant us that shape so that true godly unity would be found among us here. Until Christ comes again or until he calls us to himself, whichever might come first. Praise the Lord for his ministry to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we bless you for your word, and we ask now that you'd seal it to our souls so that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of every one of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it for the sake of Christ, the one who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen.